Before I actually stand and read uh, Psalm 96, I, I just want to give you a bit of an idea of where we're headed this morning. Um, as I've said already, uh, the psalms that are chosen uh, for this summer series are ones that are near and dear to me. Psalm 96 is increasingly becoming one of my favorites. And I can tell you that this week, as I studied more and more, uh, it only is proving to be more and more one of my favorites. And I just want to give you a little reason why. Um, as guys like me do what we do throughout the week, um, we glean and we take things from people that are a lot smarter than we are. And we have the ability and, and the, the wonderful joy with technology that we can glean information from tens, hundreds of years over time to be able to understand people's wisdom and guidance through the Psalms. And this week I have found that to be true. A little just story of, of Ryan that you may or may not know. Um, every Superman has kryptonite, right? And um, I have mine. Maybe you can argue that I'm not Superman. I would argue back. But uh, I have kryptonite, and that kryptonite is chips and salsa. And uh, salsa in particular, and there's a certain kind of salsa that really is something that it's, 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 it's habanero and mango salsa that's really kind of attracted me lately. And what is special about salsa to me is that you can take things like mangoes and habaneros, things that you wouldn't think would go together, but you have a sweet and you have a spicy, and together they just make a really wonderful taste. Then you throw some peppers and some onions and tomatoes, and you just have all kinds of kryptonite. Why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because I feel this week that this message that I'm going to preach is a little bit like salsa. I've taken bits and pieces from guys like Legan Duncan, Derek Kidner, John Calvin, Brian Chappell, and, a little, and some of Ryan. But I can tell you that not all of the thoughts in the message today are original to Ryan. It's a little bit like salsa, right? And you put it all together and you put it in a food processor and hopefully out comes something really tasty. So if you were to go and look at the commentaries on Psalm 96, you're going to hear thoughts from other people come out in this message. And I just need to be transparent with you that. I need to be honest with you. Um, there's a lot here that's Ryan, but there's some that's not. And then, with that being said, why Psalm 96 is special is because we need to understand a context. As in every scripture that we come across, we have to understand context. In seminary, they taught us a phrase called context is king. Without context, you really have no bearing on where you're headed. So what is Psalm 96? If you remember, if you were to go back in your Old Testament into, into Chronicles, into First Chronicles, in about 14 to 16 or 17, there's this really great story of David and um, what he, his life is going about. The, the people of God have just gone through a civil war between the factions of Saul and the factions of David. And they've been fighting and Saul, as we know, is trying to kill David. But in the meantime, the Ark of the Covenant, the representation of, of God's presence with the people has been put off in some little crazy backwater town out of the way where, where no one can hopefully maybe find it. And David is yearning and longing for the Ark of the Covenant, for, for God to be back in the presence of the people. And he's preparing and he's doing all these kind of things after Saul is, is out of the picture. And he says that he's going to, to rescue and restore the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, where it's supposed to be in the presence of God's people. And finally, through all kinds of actions, the Ark is now brought back into Jerusalem. And we know the story of this, what's going on, that, that David now, he's dancing nearly naked, and his, his wife you know, says, David, you're crazy. And he says, 
it, just wait, it's going to get even crazier, right? Just, if you think this is crazy, just watch what I do next. But there's also a little subset about Psalm 96 that fits right into there. There's this guy by the name of Asaph. And Asaph, which his name in Hebrew means to gather, he is the worship director of God's people. So what if we just named Kevin Asaph to gather, right? Well, that's just a really fitting worship director's name, right? To gather people together into worship of the Lord. And so Asaph is charged and given the task of setting songs to music, to writing songs, to writing music. And Psalm 96 is a song sung by Asaph and his singers as the Ark of the Covenant comes back into Jerusalem after being away, after the representation of the presence of God was out of, his, out of the people of God, now back into the presence of God, we come to Psalm 96. Rise and hear the reading of God's word. The ark is coming. Well, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. And let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. So far the reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks for your word. I pray that you would watch over your word, that you would guide it, that Holy Spirit, you would take this, these words and carry them to these people gathered here. Again, uphold your promise to make your word strong, active in these lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This psalm is a psalm of praise, but it's actually also what we call a messianic song. If you know that word or you don't know that word, to be a messianic psalm means it is particularly pertaining to a particular person, that being our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so as we see, our editors in our Bibles, if you have an ESV or NIV, it probably doesn't have much information given to you as far as the headline of the, of the psalm is concerned. However, when it was first translated from Hebrew into other languages, specifically a language of the Syriac, the Syria language, there was a phrase that said this. It says, A prophecy concerning the coming of Christ and the calling of the Gentiles who should believe in Him. So as we look at this psalm this morning, we should bear in mind 
what does that look like? What does it look like for us to worship? Think of David as he danced in the streets as the Ark of the Covenant, as God's presence came back into the presence of the people. What does it look like for us to worship with that same sense? To sing as Asaph and his singers sang these words, Splendor and majesty are the Lord's. Glory is God's. In the light of the truth of this psalm, we need to ask this question. How are we to go about worship? What does it look like for us? What does it mean? How do we respond? I want to answer that question in these ways. I want to break down this psalm in four sections for us. The question is, how are we to worship? We are to worship with the mission of God. We are to worship with the worthiness of God. We are to worship with the glory of God. And we are to worship with the intent of God. So let's jump into this wonderful, wonderful psalm. Psalm 96. And I want you to first look at verses 1 to 3, this first section of this psalm with me. It's there where we see the first item of the outline. We're to worship with the mission of God. Or we could say this is the call to worship. This is David, who's the author of the, of the psalm. Asaph and his singers sung it, but David is often considered to be the author of it. David calls us to worship, and it's there where we see this call to worship in the first three verses. But this call to worship, I think, it seems to me, is a little bit different than the normal kind of call to worship, isn't it? Do you see that there? Can you, can you put two and two together as to why it might be a little bit different, even the call to worship that, that we had even this morning? For what do we think of as call to worship? It's the Lord God himself calling believers, his people, to come into worship. So we, as believers, as this body of Christ, the Lord has called us into his presence this morning. But in Psalm 96, it seems to be a little bit different too. Do you see that? What does he say? He said, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord. Just people of the PCA? (laughs) Just people of the Baptist church? Just people of evangelical descent? No. He's calling to worship all the earth. He's calling everyone. It's not simply aimed at the people of God who already confess His name, who already believe the gospel. But here it's addressed to the peoples, to the nations, to all the earth, to the mission of God. So looking then at verses 1 to 3, we see in verse 1, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Then look at verse 2. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day, declare His glory among who? Among the nations in verse 3. His marvelous works, we're to tell of His marvelous works among, again in verse 3, among people in Arlington? People in Texas or the United States? All the nations. All the people. I came in at the very end of Nate's Sunday school this morning and he was talking about this too, and we didn't talk about this this morning. I know where Nate's going with where he's talking about, but 
Psalm 96 is picking up on something that Nate talked about this morning and really is picking up on the promises given to Abraham. If you were to go back into the book of Genesis in your Old Testament and go back into Genesis 12:2, we see that God is a promise maker and he's a promise keeper. In Genesis 12:2, we're told of this promise that God gave to Abraham that you will be a blessing. You will be a blessing to the nations. And this was not only a promise, but it was a job description. It was a call on Abraham's life and all of his descendants' life to be a blessing. To be a blessing to the people that he came into contact with every day. His neighbors. Those in the borders and outside the borders. To be a blessing to all people. To be a blessing to the nations. And so this psalm is picking up on that very phrase It says, declare His glory among the nations. For then, all the families of the earth will be be blessed, is what the Lord told Abraham. Declare His glory, His marvelous works among all people. Sing to the Lord all the earth. And again, this psalm picks up on that promise that God made to Abraham, that He was to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And it's emphasizing the mission of God. What is God's mission? That all people would come to know Him as their God, their Lord, and their Savior. This is what God's mission has been since the beginning of time. Since the Garden of Eden, since Genesis Genesis 3 to Genesis 12, to Matthew, to Mark, to Luke, to John, to Corinthians, to Revelation, to today. The mission of God is that the nations would come and know Him as their Savior and their Lord. If that's the Lord's mission, then as we worship, this too needs to be our intent also, isn't it? If that's God's mission, and that's what he told Abraham a really long time ago, then we, when we worship, our intent is the same. That many would come to know him as their Lord. And so what we can say is mission isn't a a New Testament thing. Missional, that term, is not a contemporary word. It's actually a really old concept all the way back in Genesis to our father Abraham. But what I want you to see here is that the very call to worship is a call that expresses a desire that we not only would worship God, but all the peoples of the earth would worship the Lord. It's an expression of desire that everyone who has life and breath, even the trees of the fields will clap their hands and the oceans will roar. So even the oceans will declare the glory of the Lord. The trees will declare the glory of the Lord. You will declare the glory. I, our neighbors, the nations, this is the glory of the Lord. This is the splendor of what the Lord has in mind of worship. It's a call to worship that has a missional aspect, a missional intent. God's on a mission. We are to be on the same mission. We are to get on board. We're to get on that train and serve, and love. We should desire that the souls of men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and nation would come to a saving faith of Jesus Christ. In other words, every Christian that gathers, every Christian that gathers for worship should have this intent, should have this as goal. That even as we lift up our voices in church, as we hear sermons being preached, 
that it's not just for people in this room. It's for the people down the street. It's for the people that we work with. It's for the people that we run into at Kroger, at Target, in the mall, at a Rangers game, at a Cowboys game if you can afford it. It's for all people, right? This is, this is where we are to be. There needs to be this yearning in every Christian's heart and mind. Even as we lift our voices, there ought to be somewhere in the back of our mind or at the forefront of our tongues that we long for and yearn for the nations to be a part of us. For this is what God is saying. It's what he told Abraham. It's, it's what David is singing about. It's what Asaph is singing about. Let the nations declare the glory and the splendor of the Lord that they would know Jesus is their Savior. And to say, I want the knowledge of you, the saving knowledge of you and Jesus Christ to, to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. I want to see people from every tribe and tongue and nation come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I want them to become brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That same heartbeat then is in Psalm 96 verses 1 to 3 in this call to worship. It's a call with a missional desire, a missional intent hear what I'm saying and don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that worship is only to be about the nations. Hear me say this. Worship is about the Lord God. It's for His glory. and It's for the worship of Jesus Christ. But the outcome, the byproduct of this type of worship, the outcome of a right and true worship is evangelism and missions. If our goal is that, and or, or let me put it this way, if our understanding is that we were once dead in our sins, there was nothing I could do to bring myself before the Lord, but in His grace and in His mercy, He deemed it good and right that the Holy Spirit would breathe life into me and my life would be changed, and it will be something new, that I'm a new creation? Wouldn't my desire and my intent then to be, I want my neighbor to know this. I want the person at Kroger to know this. And, and then I worship, and the outpouring of my worship, the byproduct of my worship, is an understanding of what the Lord has done for me. This is what He can do for you. This boils out of us. This spills out of us when we have a right understanding of what it means to worship to be called to worship, that it's not just for us, but it's for all nations. So no Christian can be unconcerned about the nations. And this is something I grabbed from Legan Duncan that I, that I really did appreciate. No Christian can be unconcerned about the work of evangelism. We don't have an excuse. Because we know the power of grace in our lives. No Christian can be unconcerned about the conversions of those who don't know Jesus Christ. Every Christian in every worship service, Lee Duncan says, ought to be somewhere in that service desiring that others would come to know Jesus Christ in the same way that God and His mercy has entitled you to come to know Jesus Christ. Is this our missional intent as we came into worship this morning? Or did we just check the box? I went to church today. 
I'm covered for three or four days, and then I'll just hang on tight until next Sunday, and I'll check the box again. Our intent is that the nations would come to know Jesus because this is God's missional intent and desire. Secondly, then, if that's the call to worship, we need to ask the question, why do we worship? We worship because the Lord is great. I hope you got that from the reading of Psalm 96. Can you just imagine Asaph and the Levite singers? I don't know how many there were, but I'm sure it's a pretty good group of singers. A choir singing Psalm 96 as the Ark of the Covenant, the representation of the Lord, comes back into Zion, comes back into Jerusalem from being away, and here what they are worshiping and why they're worshiping is because the Lord is great. Is this what we come into worship? I'm getting goosebumps on the back of my neck. Did we come into worship today with the splendor of the Lord on our minds and our thoughts and in our hearts? That this Lord is the great God, worthy of all glory and honor and majesty and splendor and honor and praise. And we can go on and on and on. Worthy is the Lord God Almighty. And we're told in Revelation that there are angels now, as we stand, as we sit right here, right now, the seraph, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is a perpetual song that rings in the halls of heaven this day. Is this the song that rings in the halls of our hearts that the Lord is great, worthy of praise? He's worthy of our worship because of His majesty, because of His beauty, because of His glory, because He created everything. In other words, we're to worship God because we know that the Lord is great. Look around. And if you don't know, and you don't really believe that the Lord is great, Can I be bold to say you don't know what worship really is? If you did not come and I did not come into worship this morning thinking on my mind and in my heart and in my life that I'm going to worship the King of the universe and His greatness and His majesty and His splendor, then I don't know if we've come to understand worship. The cause of worship then, why we worship, is the greatness of the Lord. God's own greatness is the reason for our worship. And so then, I want to suggest to you a couple of things for the reasons that our worship is sometimes flat. Have you ever felt that? <laughs> Maybe you're feeling that right now. Why is that? Why is our worship sometimes flat the hard question is do you really believe the Lord is great is he worthy of your presence right can we dare and be bold enough is the Lord great is the Lord deserving of your praise and of your worship or are there other things in our lives that we deem greater more powerful more shiny more bright more alluring more comforting, more secure. If we have those things, then those are the things that we worship. That's where our heart goes. But this morning we have an opportunity to adjust, to recalibrate, to recalibrate our worship, 
to recalibrate the greatness and the majesty and the splendor of the Lord God. This is what we have an opportunity every single Sunday to do, no matter what the week has provided for us. We come to recalibrate and know in real ways the Lord is great. So what's the cause of our worship? What could compel us to worship God? His greatness. Because, as another commentator put it, He is inherently worthy of our worship. In His being, in who He is, that's what inherently means. In the very nature of it, just like I'm six foot five and got gray hair and gray beard, God inherently is worthy of our worship. It's who He is. It's what He is. And so when we worship little g gods, we take away the glory and the splendor and the honor of the Lord God, Yahweh. You see, the Bible doesn't have a number of paths to worship. There's not 15 ways to get to the Lord. There's not 100 ways to get to the Lord. Jesus said the road is narrow. There's only one way. And that's for Him. And that's for Jesus. You see, because as we pursue other avenues, other paths, we deny again what Scripture is telling us. The Bible is absolutely emphatic there's only one God and only one way. And that's Jesus Christ. And it's affirming here in this passage, right? In Psalm 96. He is to be feared above all gods because all the gods of the people are worthless idols. That security, that bank account, that new job, worthless idols. Those things are, I'm not saying they're not important, but if those are the things that we put above the glory and the splendor and the majesty of the Lord God, they are worthless idols idols and they will provide you nothing. So how do we come into worship this morning? Are we recalibrating that our Lord is great? That this is who we worship and this is who loves us despite our brokenness? Another commentator puts it this way. There's a delicious play on words in the Hebrew language here in this psalm. The Hebrew word for God, one of them is Elohim. You know this. The Hebrew word for idol is Elil. The Hebrew word for God, Elohim, contrasts to Elil, which means a nobody, a nothing. So the psalmist has just said, the Lord our God is God, and the gods of the people are nobodies and nothings. And then he says, not very politically correct, is it? The things that we pine after other than God are worthless. But this is not what the world tells us. It tells us you can have it all. You can be it all. You're a one-man army, a one-woman army. It's up to you and you alone to figure it out. You're autonomous. You're powerful. You're great. Until you're not. And then we have something else to sell you. The Lord God says, I am the Lord your God the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, and I've brought you to myself. This is the Lord we serve. 
And so then that's why we worship, because the Lord is great, right? We've been called to worship. We understand why we worship, because the Lord is great. We have this missional intent that we want the nations to worship with us, because He is great. And then so then we ask the question, what do we worship? What is it that we worship? What's the, what's the content of our worship? Look at verses 7 to 9. Just read those again. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering. Come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. So what do we worship? We're to bring an offering. We're to give Him glory due His name. In all of those words, we have an acknowledgement that God deserves to be worshipped. Ascribe to Him. You're not giving Him something that He doesn't deserve. He already is. We're ascribing something to Him that He exists and He's worthy of our ascribing. Ascribe to Him. Offer Him. Why do we offer these things to Him? Why do we worship because he deserves it. The whole point is that you come to worship acknowledging already that God deserves to be worshipped. And if you don't, if we don't, our heart's not in it. And so then we're to come with holiness. Another theologian asked this question about these three verses. A pretty good illustration that I'm just going to steal. And I told you this is a little bit like salsa. I'm just begging and borrowing from all kinds of different people this morning. He says, what do you wear to church? (laughs) It's changed a bit. When I was a kid, I had, even as a little boy, I had to wear a tie. And sometimes my parents would put me in sweaters that were itchy and scratchy and it was miserable and awful. And I hated it. And every other man wore a suit and a tie. And the ladies wore dresses. Some of them wore hats. So what do you wear to church? Things have changed a little bit, and it's relaxed. And when I was a kid, there was no pastor in his right mind would be wearing khakis and a shirt, and let alone tennis shoes. What in the world? Things have changed a little bit. But what do we wear to church? What does the psalm say we wear to church? It says to put on the splendor of the Lord. To put on holiness. It's not a command to wear your Sunday best. It's a command to bring the splendor of the Lord upon you. To put on a new cloak, a new garment, and that is the holiness and the splendor of the Lord. It's a command to clothe yourself in His glory. In the adornment of this holiness, we come to worship the Lord. So what do we wear to church? We wear what the Lord gives us. We wear His holiness, His splendor, His glory. And so there could be an argument that maybe we should wear our Sunday best or we should wear suits and ties. You can make that argument because the Lord gives us His best. But if we don't, this is where we see the gospel come into play, isn't it? Because we recognize really quickly (laughs) that I don't bring that on Sunday mornings. I just don't. I have my mind going in ten different directions at a minimum at one time. I have other thoughts. I have other desires. When is it going to be over? What's for lunch? 
It's interesting that Jesus picks up on Psalm 96 in his first sermon. You remember what he says? Jesus' first sermon, the gospel give it to us here. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Did you hear that? Repent, for God's coming reign and rule and judgment is here. The ark of the covenant is returning to Zion. His presence is here. Repent. Repent of your little g-gods. Repent of what it is that we do. For we need to be clothed in His righteousness if we're going to come and worship the living God. This then is the Gospel. We can't come into this presence of the Lord without Jesus Christ washing us clean through the perfect act of His life, death, and resurrection. Through the cross that He spilled His blood to wash us clean so that we can be washed clean and put on a fresh garment, to put on the holiness, to put on the splendor of the Lord. It's only that we can do that because of what Christ has done for us, what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. It's the only way. And so then when we enter into worship, we lean into the cross. We lean into an empty tomb, and we have confidence that He then puts on the garment of holiness for us. He puts on the garment of the splendor of the majesty, of the glory of the Lord. God deserves our worship because He's worthy of it. I want to conclude here this morning with the last few verses of Psalm 96 of what is it ultimately that we look forward to. We look forward to what is coming, don't we? Maybe we can say it's the context of worship. And finally, what we see that in verses 10 to 13, there is something in mind. The church fathers had a phrase, blessed hope. There's a very specific understanding what this blessed hope is and was. The blessed hope for the church fathers was the hope and the reality that Jesus would come again. That they're not left where they are. But there's a hope, a secure hope, a blessed hope that he's coming again. And this is how Psalm 96 then concludes what's going to happen, what we see in verse 10. Do you see that? Say, among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. There will be a judgment coming, and he will do it with equity, with fairness. But it is coming. What's going to happen in the end? The Lord will reign. He will reign over all the earth. The Lord will judge the peoples. And then verse 13, the Lord will come and judge the earth and judge the world in righteousness. In other words, Psalm 96 is asking us to worship with something in mind. So as we come in to worship today, not only do we have somebody in mind and the Lord in mind, we also have What's coming in mind? And what's coming in mind, in mind, in our minds, is the blessed hope that the Jesus will return. And this is what gives us hope to, to fuel our worship. Because Jesus is coming. It's the same way in worship. We're to worship in the light of the end. Another illustration that I came across was, was this. Um, so, as you know, I'm a huge sports fan, and uh, I'm longing for the NFL training camps to begin in, in a few weeks again. Believe it or not, the, the ever-ending machine of the NFL, I'm a fan. 
But some of you are like, oh my goodness, it's a football game, and I have no idea what happens in a football game. What do you mean you have four tries to go this far? I don't get it. And then they stop, and then they start over again, and when does it end? When's it ever going to end? It like takes forever. You know, the last two minutes seem to take 45 minutes. This, this is what my wife says happens in a football game. I would disagree. But there's a sense in which we don't understand the game, right? If you don't understand how football works and you go to a football game, you're just going to be bored out of your mind because you don't get it. You don't understand what the goal is, what, what the end game is, if you will. What, what the hope is, of course, the, the, the goal is to score more points than the other, but how do you get there is also part of it, Right? And so the more you understand about the intricacies of a game, of a football game, the more you begin to appreciate what happens. It's the same thing in worship. If we don't understand what we're doing and why we're doing it and what the end game is, in football it's to score more points, but in, in, in worship it's to understand the end, what's happening. We have this hope that Jesus is returning, that he's coming back. And this shapes us. It molds us. It molds our worship. It shapes us. We're to worship with that in mind. If we don't understand how it's supposed to end, we don't understand what's happening now. And yet, we know that the Lord wins, according to Derek Kidner. And the Lord reigns, and the Lord judges, and he forgives those who trust in him, and he will judge those with equity. And so this is the controlling reality for life. And as I said, this is what the early fathers called the blessed hope, that the Lord is coming. And if that's not a controlling reality in our life, we won't get it. We won't care about it. And our worship will be limp and flat. But for the true believer... They worship with the mission of God in mind. They worship because God is great. They worship because he's worthy of worship. And they worship because he's coming back. May God grant that we would worship with these things in mind. And Psalm 96 be on our lips this week. For he is worthy of our praise. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks for you are worthy of our worship. So we pray that you would put your splendor and your holiness as a robe, as you have robed the heavens with the stars and spread out your residence over the seas like a tent. Clothe us with your righteousness. Close us, close us with your holiness. We pray this in the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.